In C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, where a fictional devil gives instruction to his apprentice on how to tempt a human, the devil counsels, Let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination or affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. The more often he feels, without action, the less he will be able to ever act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. In this week's episode, we begin studying the powerful record of Enoch in search of foundational first steps to acting and walking with God. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey there, this is episode four, and we are ready to study with you in Genesis 5 and Moses 6. Um, This week, we've got something a little different for you. Or Zach does. He noticed a pattern in the scriptures. Can you believe it? <laughs> Sorry, Zach. I had to tease well, you on that. No, you, you teased me last week after we were we were recording well, or talking. and That's where I got the joke from. I said, I noticed a pattern. You said, oh, you noticed a pattern? No. <laughs> Sorry. Apparently all I do is notice patterns. No, no. That's what, that's what makes it good. But we've got lots of good stuff. Well, I don't know if we have lots of good stuff, but we are excited again about what... Um, We'll be studying Genesis 5 and then the added insight that we get from the Pearl of Great Price as we study in Moses 6 this week too, this week as well. Well, I did notice a few patterns. Oh, even a few. Well, Genesis 5 is a genealogy similar to other genealogies you'll find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, But there's a pattern to this and it's helpful to identify the pattern because it's interrupted in one place and from that one place, an entire chapter of the Pearl of Great Price, Moses 6, Springs. So the pattern is this. It mentions father and then son. So uh, Adam begat Seth. And then it mentions uh, how long the father, quote, lived after he begat his son. And then it totals up all of his life and says that he died. So for example, these are the verses right before the pattern is interrupted. This is verses 18 through 20. Jared lived 162 years and begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Now listen to the pattern interrupted in two places. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now, the second interruption is one that we're probably more familiar with. We know that Enoch and his city was translated. We'll read more about that in Moses chapter 7. But the first interruption that Enoch didn't just live, but he alone amongst those mentioned in this genealogy, which includes Adam and Seth and Noah, walked with God. And that phrase was pretty electric to me as I was reading this week, not only because it created a phenomenal question to dive into Moses 6 with, which we'll get to in just a minute, but it connected to something that is a grander theme in the Bible. Um, Bible scholars put a, a fancy phrase to it. It's, it's called temple theology. 
But all it means is in the narrative of the Old Testament, there is a common pattern and a good place to see it is actually in the story of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve are created in a celestial space. They are in the presence of God. Then they have to leave the presence of God and enter the world. And in the world, they have to live a mortal life and confront Satan. But their goal is to go back to the presence of God. And there's even directions involved in this. So Adam and Eve live in the garden, which was planted eastward. They're driven from the garden westward, and then their progress back into the garden or back to God is eastward. And so this shows up when the, when the Israelites build a tabernacle, they build it east to west with the Holy of Holies, the place that represents God's presence being in the eastern part of the tabernacle. So that as you progress through the tabernacle, you're moving eastward, you're moving back to Eden. And the reason why I liked uh, Enoch walking with God is that in Moses, the book of Moses, we see this progress happening too. We have the creation account at the beginning of Moses. Last week, we studied what happens in the world after they leave the garden. We have Cain and Abel, uh, and Cain slaying Abel. And then uh, chapter five of Moses describes some of the wickedness that has spread throughout the world, people loving Satan and following him. But here... In chapter 6, Enoch reverses directions and decides he's going to walk with God back towards God's presence. And he becomes this symbol for um, using our agency to turn around and and return to God's presence. And I just, that, that symbolism, that imagery was so compelling to me. And so the question we wanted to ask as we dive into Moses 6 is a pretty simple one, but it, I think, brings out a lot of great truths in Moses 6 and, and some practical insights for us. And the question is, how can I walk with God? Well, what you might not believe about this answer to this question is that most of the night, as Zach and I have prepared, we fought over what the answer to this question actually is. And not because we necessarily disagree, but um, I think it's one of those things that is easy but hard to answer. Um, and especially with some of these things, this um, maybe this first one that we're that I want to talk about in answer to this question. Um, I think sometimes I tend to get very esoteric in the way that I answer questions. Um, sometimes I'll use the word floaty. I know I've said that multiple times on the podcast, the un, uneducated way of saying that. You're a very high-level thinker, symbolism and, and ideas. That and speaks I'm, to me. I'm just too basic and muddy, <laughs> and I need practical no. examples. Anyway, um, so let me back up a little with that little preface in mind of a little insight into our preparation <laughs> sometimes. Um, I'm going to back up and talk about this walk that Enoch has with God. And this starts in Moses chapter 6, verse 26. And it came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land among the people. And as he journeyed, the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. And I like even thinking of that in, um, Zach, with a little bit of what you mentioned of how he is beginning this journey. He's already kind of turned toward God and is walking his direction. So he journeyed and the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. 
Verse 27, And he heard a voice from heaven saying, Enoch, my son, prophesy unto this people and say unto them, Repent, for thus saith the Lord, I am angry with this people, and my fierce anger is kindled against them. For their hearts have waxed hard, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes cannot see afar off. Um, so as we answer this question, um, we get to see that this is Enoch on his journey. So we have that kind of narrative going on in the background as this is Enoch's journey. He's talking to God in these scriptures, or God is talking to him. And what God tells him, for me, answers in maybe gives a small answer to one of the this question of how can I walk with God? And the answer is that I've um, is this. Their hearts have waxed hard and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes cannot see afar off. So maybe that is actually a way to not walk with God. <laughs> These people are not walking with God because of those things. And this is kind of a theme. Obviously, this is a scripture. This is a phrase that appears in multiple scriptures in the Old Testament multiple times. And in the New Testament, Jesus quotes quotes scripture and says the same thing. And it's always been something that has meant a lot to me. And I want to read a little bit more into this and turn to the New Testament in Matthew 13, 14, and 15, just to get another insight into what this is saying. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. Um, and maybe this is exactly the journey that we see that Enoch's gone. I love that last part where it talks about turn back and I will heal them. Once they open their eyes, once they open their heart, and once they open their ears to me to understand. And so I think this is a way, and this is where um, we started kind of trying to figure out what each other was even talking about. But I love this idea of really envisioning yourself. I, I even envision it on a, like myself walking and journeying and just trying to remove the hardness of my heart, my heart opening up and softening. And usually I feel like it's essential for me, and as I envision what this looks like, it's this peeling away of scraping away the world from our eyes, scraping away the distractions, and clearing out our ears so that we're really listening to God. And through that, our heart is, is open. That phrase, the broken heart and a contrite spirit, is exactly what this means. We're opening up our our faculties to what God wants to speak to us. And unfortunately, I can envision this and I can feel it. I don't really know a practical example. And I know this is what we were we were trying to figure out. And maybe you can think of one or maybe Zach, I don't know, maybe you can explain your part of this. Is this because this is a little bit floaty yet it's not because we see it in scripture multiple times. So maybe it's something you have to live to really understand. Well, just as you were talking and as we were studying before, um, I love that cross-reference, the Savior's use of this image, because it provides a counterexample, which for me helps me understand more what the example should be. So in that, that text that you read, um, the Savior's critique is of those that look but don't see. And as I think of that, I think there are an innumerable amount of things in our modern world to look at. 
you're hard pressed in a day to look in a direction and not see some kind of display, screen, phone, tablet, computer, uh, video, movie, commercial, billboard, etc. There are so many things to look at. And so I think the challenge there is, or, or the critique is, is uh, when our eyes cannot see afar off because they're so blinded by the world that's pressing in upon us. Um, as you were talking, Krista, I, I, I understood something, or at least understood a bit of something that I didn't understand even as we were studying. Um, and so it's fascinating. In verse 35, a little bit later on in Enoch's interaction with God, uh, the Lord asks him to anoint his eyes with clay and then wash them so that he can see. And it says Enoch did so. And then this is verse 36. He beheld the spirits that God had created and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. And I wondered, I wondered many times, obviously the Savior does this when he heals the blind man. What does it mean to anoint with clay? And I'm sure there are many symbolic representations of that. But one that has just struck me is clay is dirt is is uh, transitory it's temporary it's a symbol of the the fallible world that we live in and part of this might be the lord saying i'm going to put something on your eyes that symbolizes uh, the world and then i'm going to ask you to wash it away so that symbolically and then hopefully spiritually you wash away your reliance upon what you're looking at what is so mortally present in front of you so that you can see things that are more spiritually uh, significant. I actually really like this in conjunction with this greater question that we're studying this year with the Old Testament. And that is a reminder from the last few weeks is who is God and who am I? And I, I have that question written down here and I just thought, who is God? We can't see, we can't get to know God if we're not seeing him and listening to him. And I think that he teaches us who we are um, by opening up our hearts. And so I see it as a pattern in that too, is we come to know God as we open up our heart and our eyes, and we come to understand who he is and who we are through this process. Well, doesn't that match so well what President Nelson has invited us to do? Uh, some of his, his maiden uh, invitations to us as members of the church was to open our eyes to Revelation and more recently, he's asked us to open our ears to hear him. Similar to our eyes, there are so many things we can listen to, but are we making an effort to really hear the voice of God? And then with our heart, there's a whole lot of feelings going around in our world, but can we understand uh, the promptings and the feelings that God is communicating to our heart? So I love the idea of of peeling away. You keep doing this with your hands. I wish they could see it because you're, you're miming washing away or peeling away the world and being able to see and hear and understand things that are beyond what's just physically and mortally present in front of us. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting my onion analogy, talking <laughs> right. about peeling. Right. He didn't get my onion analogy, but now he gets it. So anyway, maybe we belabor that point a little bit, but I think it's an important groundwork for understanding yeah. all yeah, just for having a life of faith. I think it's just an important thing to look at. Well, I like that as maybe a starting place for our walk with God uh, to remove the, the the mud from our eyes, the, the you know, deafness from our ears and the hardness from our heart so that we can begin the journey. One of the things that fascinated me 
was um, a, a pattern <laughs> that I noticed here, and I, I've read about it from from uh, some biblical scholars. Um, another fancy name that they attach to it, they call it the narrative call pattern, and it's simply uh, a pattern that appears repeatedly in the scriptures, uh, where the Lord calls someone to do something. But there's a specific way in which he does it. And from our very first episode, we mentioned that this season, one of the things we are most focused on is asking and answering the question of who is God? What do we learn about his character and his personality and his preferences, the way that he works and does things? And to me, understanding the way the Lord called Enoch and the way that he will call others that we'll read about this year is really helpful for me so that I can understand what he might be doing to call me and where maybe I am in this narrative call pattern. So step one, uh, Christy, you already read it. It's the divine confrontation. When the Lord calls someone, there's often a manifestation of his presence. Think Moses and the burning bush, or in this example, it's Enoch journeying and the spirit descending upon him. It's Joseph in the grove uh, seeing the pillar of light. There is something out of the ordinary that indicates that God is, is attentive in this moment to me. The second element of the pattern is the introductory word. And in almost every single example, the introductory word is a name and even a description of the person named. So we mentioned uh, in our first episode about Moses 1, when Moses is called, the first thing the Lord explains to him is who he, the Lord, is. But then, Moses, you are my son, and you're in the similitude of my only begotten. Of course, Joseph, my son. Um, and then here, verse 27, Enoch heard a voice from heaven saying, Enoch, my son. That's the introductory word. Then comes the commission, prophesying to this people and saying to them, repent. There's almost always an objection to the commission, and Enoch's objection is in verse 31. When Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord, saying, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight, and am but a lad, and all the people hate me, for I am slow of speech? Wherefore am I thy servant? Moses gave a very similar objection, and many others that will be called give similar objections. The Lord provides a reassurance uh, in verse 34. Behold, my spirit is upon you. Wherefore all thy words, which I uh, words will I justify, and the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore walk with me. And then the sign, and we've mentioned this already, but the sign for Enoch is anointing his eyes, and as he removes that clay from his eyes, he's able to see things he's never seen before. Um, for Moses, the sign is is the stick, throw the stick on the ground, it turns into a serpent. The, the plagues of Israel or the plagues of Egypt um, are symbolic that God's reassurance can be counted upon. Um, I like this because it's, it's almost a map of a relationship with God. And it's something I can look at and say, okay, step one, have there been divine confrontations in my life? Um, or maybe the better question is, when have there been? What moments in my life can I look back on and say, that's where God was, and that's when he was saying something to me or showing something to me? Uh, number two, has he spoken to me to reassure me that I am his child? And if not, what can I do to create a space for that initial or introductory word? Number three, has he given me a commission? Do I know what it is the Lord wants me to do? 
Number four, am I in the middle of objecting to that commission, which is probably a pretty long phase in most of our experiences. I know I find myself quite there quite often. Um, number five, is there a reassurance that comes to answer my objection? What do I feel about what the Lord feels about my objection or my hesitations? And then number six, what signs am I seeing because I've accepted my commission and maybe more importantly, accepted the Lord's reassurance that he will be with me. And I don't know if we're necessarily at one place in the pattern and not at another. Many of them, I'm sure, overlap. We move backwards and forwards. But I like this map of progress in our relationship with God, leading from an initial introduction to acceptance of a commission and 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 the manifestation of signs to show that we're we're with him and that we're doing the work that he's asked us to do. Well, I think this is a good example of, I guess I kind of see both of these things that we've talked about so far really coming together because, well, the the eye thing really helps, that he actually did clean his eyes from clay. I think that's a good sim- symbolic meaning for us as this walk that we have with God, that um, it's not a linear path. It's going to be up and down, and it's going to be rocky, and it's going to be progress and progress and then not progress. And maybe, you know, those peaks and valleys are at different times for all of us. But I love this pattern to kind of um, allow us to identify um, certain points on our path. Um, And I think that's really helpful. And one of my favorite parts is some advice or maybe a commandment that the Lord gives to Enoch um, in verse 33. He tells him to say unto this people, Choose ye this day to serve the Lord God who made you. Um, no matter how non-linear or rocky or really steep um, or flat your um, journey or your walk with God becomes, I think this is an important piece of all of it is choose ye this day who, who you are going to serve, that you're going to turn to the Lord and and choose him each day. Well, that's a great companion principle to that that call pattern because it emphasizes that uh, that our choice is what kickstarts at least our involvement um, in the pattern. God can appear to us and, and give us that initial word and that commission, but there has to be a moment when we choose to accept that call and choose to accept that presence. You know, I was in a discussion today um, where someone talked about uh, a term I'd never heard before, but I really liked called um, subscription sainthood. And the idea was if we subscribe to a, a, a magazine, uh, that magazine comes to us indefinitely. We've paid the subscription and, and that guarantees that relationship indefinitely until we cancel the relationship. And the question was are we subscription saints? Have we chosen to be all in? Um, indefinitely. And I know that's, that's a difficult discussion to have right now because a lot of people uh, in, our, in our culture um, are, are wrestling and grappling with different aspects of their faith. But I think there's something to be said for making a choice for, for loyalty and, and for subscription, even though we know that not every single answer has come or not every single problem is resolved. Um, and so that's that's what strikes me in the Lord's invitation to Enoch and his people is there is comes a point when we need to say, you know what, I'm going to choose to follow this this God, 
even though I don't know everything he's going to say or everything he's going to do, even though I may not understand everything that comes to me from him through prophets, even though I might have wrestles or doubts or problems or struggles with it, can I choose him? Um, it reminds me of the marriage relationship the Lord always brings up in symbolic terms in the New Testament, right? In a marriage, you choose your spouse, not because you know how the marriage is going to pan out indefinitely, but you're making a commitment to someone and you're committing to stay with them regardless of what happens. And I think there's an element of that in what the Lord is asking from Enoch and his people. And as we'll see in the next chapter, I think it's that subscription from Enoch and those that are with him that elevate him and the city of Enoch to such a celestial status. And I think maybe one lesson in all of this as we try and walk with God is finding out who God is. And I think that's one of the themes of the Bible is that God wants to show us that he is faithful. He is faithful to us and he he's going to choose us. He wants to be there for us. And I think that's that's a really beautiful lesson to learn. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I hope that you have fun with that question this week. You'll find so many different and, and more personal and meaningful answers to you than what we shared. But I think the question is very worthwhile. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of our podcast every week, we want to help you discover and invest and connect. And as we study, we discover and we invest. We learn truths from the scriptures and we invest our heart and our personal experiences into the scriptures. But then we also want to help connect to others that might be studying with us. And one of the thoughts that we had this week that might help us connect is we've had a couple of people that have reached out to us and asked us about Bible translations, which translations we use and, and maybe how we decide on those. And is it, even is it okay to use a different translation of the Bible? Uh, unfortunately, in our culture, we've kind of picked up the false idea that uh, there is only one true and living translation of the Bible, and it's the King James translation. And I know I'm very well aware of quotes that uh, that elevate the King James translation, um, but there has been a lot of gospel scholarship, a lot of, of biblical scholarship, uh, and there is a lot of benefit to be had in looking at other translations of the Bible. In fact, you'll notice in some of the recent general conferences, some of the general authorities will use alternate translations of the Bible to just gain a different perspective on what might be happening. I think it's important to note too that as the the church expands into other countries and other languages that the King James Version is an English translation. Mm -hmm. So it's natural that a lot of those um, other countries that are not English speaking would definitely be using a different translation too. So um, we have had a lot of fun and I'm a little bit newer to this. We have a couple study Bibles. Zach has a few that he really likes. You'll find me. In fact, I read from it today. Um, so you might've noticed that some of the scriptures that I read, I guess I only read from the New Testament and the Pearl of Great Price, but that the language is a little different. I am reading and will be studying mostly from a Christian standard Bible translation. And there's just so many fun Bibles. It's kind of fun to look around at them. This one for me is I chose because it's really pretty and it's it's clean and it's um, a very simple, yeah. simplified version. And so this one, it has a few footnotes, but it's really mostly just a red Bible. And Zach has a few study Bibles specifically. I have a few study Bibles, but I haven't dug into them as much. Um, but we do look at Zach's a lot that he really enjoys. Yeah, I have three different translations. I look, I look in addition to the King James, I look at the, uh, the NIV, the ESV, and the NRSV. Um, and you can find almost all these translations you can find online. I have uh, paper copies and study copies um, because I like the comparison. 
as you look at different translations, you'll notice there's kind of a, a spectrum of translations. There's what's called a text literal translation where they essentially take either the Hebrew or the Greek and they're trying to translate it word for word. The King James is more text literal where it's trying to stay with the original cadence and, and even the syntax of words, which makes for sometimes some awkward reading, which is why the King James can be a little bit more difficult to navigate. There are then message Bibles, which take the idea and try and put it into English that's more understandable. There are benefits and drawbacks to both, which is why looking at another translation when you hit difficult verses or a passage you want to understand better, I think is a great way to approach something. Of course, the ultimate insight to be gained on a biblical passage that doesn't make sense is comparing it with other scriptures, predominantly the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, the New Testament, and then looking at prophetic commentary, what prophets, apostles, and other church leaders have said about it. And so these, these study Bibles can just add to that understanding of what's happening. So hopefully that helps you as you study and maybe as you study with others. Um, some of our Christian uh, brothers and sisters and friends that are of different faiths use different language to describe things. And if we can become fluent in that language, we can be a little bit more conversant with them. So hopefully that helps you study. Yeah, and if anything, I just think that this this study this year is so fun because it is something that we have in common with just so many other faith traditions. And so it's an exciting thing to even dive into. I've, I think it's been fun to look at different translations and hopefully that enriches your study a little bit with your, with your for your own benefit and for those that you teach and learn together with. Thank you so much for being with us this week and this episode, and we'll see you next week.